you're tuned in to the Manjeet Minhas podcast. Welcome to the Manjeet Minhas podcast. In each episode, we sit down and talk to different business leaders and industry experts to hear about the challenges they faced and how they were able to follow the path of success. Today, we are talking to the CEO of Rocky Mountain Soap Company, a skincare and hygiene company that uses strictly natural and simple ingredients. Frontiering the cause to change the way the beauty industry creates their products, Rocky Mountain Soap champions the importance of toxin-free, all-natural ingredients and has done so for over 20 years. So without further ado, Karina Birch, welcome to the show. Karina, thanks for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. So let's get started. Talk to me a little bit about where you grew up, about your family life, well before Rocky Mountain Soap Company. Yeah, well, I was born in Edmonton and I was there until three. And then after that, we moved to Lloydminster and and I have four brothers. So it was a family of seven in total, five kids, big family, lots of boys that definitely influenced what we did as kids and in our spare time. But yeah, so grew up in a small town, Lloydminster. And then in grade nine, we moved back to Edmonton, but chose to live in St. Albert. Went to high school there. And then from there, went to the University of Alberta, moved to Edmonton. And from there, moved to Canmore in, gee, I guess, 2000 or no, it was in 99 and moved to, moved to Canmore. And I've been here since. So. You're through and through Alberta girl. Yes, I am. I mean, I was close to the Saskatchewan border for a period of time, living in Lloydminster right on the border. And we we did spend lots of time in Saskatchewan. Both of my parents come from farming families. So a lot of our summers were spent on the farm with relatives. So my dad's family's from Saskatchewan and then my mom's family's all in Alberta. And so your your roots and, and what did you think that you were going to do when you were growing up? Was it always agricultural based or product based that you thought you would you would do when, when you were in university? No, in fact, that surprises me the connection, you know, back to plants and, and nature, you know, and we can get into more of that later on. But no, that that was a surprise to me. As much as I loved and connected to the time on the farm. I mean, we did everything from harvesting, planting and harvesting the garden, picking wild berries, processing meat that, from animals that were raised on the farm. We were really exposed to a lot. Both of my parents' families immigrated to Canada and farming was, was really the, the biggest opportunity for them to have some land and make their own living and very much connected to where their food came from. So for sure, that was a big part of my childhood, seeing seeing and being part of that. But never did it cross my mind that that would form or connect in any way to my future. Really, after university, you know, I went to business school and you're a bit on autopilot when you leave university because it's not a it's not necessarily a well-defined path for most students and so really what the formula was coming out of university was apply to the big consulting firms move to the big city that is what business students did and so that felt like very much 
part of what my next phase was going to be this and it I would say it felt a bit like autopilot but even though I took entrepreneur classes at school and I loved those are some of my favorite classes for some reason I never made the connection with I had never stopped to think could I be an entrepreneur and it wasn't that I didn't think I could it just I never my mind never went there so when I fell into being an entrepreneur it was it was very much unplanned and I just went with what felt good felt right at the time it was just a series of circumstances that unfolded my parents immigrated to this country too from from India and I do find when I talk to a lot of people whose parents did immigrate to Canada that they they think they don't think of entrepreneurship as a path also because in some cases it doesn't always seem to be the path that is tried tested and true and a secure future as many many of our parents tell us like my mom definitely was no oil company energy company downtown calgary like that's what you do with an engineering background and that's it's a nine to five it's a, it's a paycheck that is coming in and i think that for me too, it was never something that was thought of or that you see many people around you that are entrepreneurs. So you don't think of it as a path maybe, or even it's not explained in that many words that you can do that for fun as a hobby and whether it be farming or many other things, but as a, as a job, you don't really, aren't really told or maybe don't see that as a, as a path that you could have a career in. Yeah, I agree with you because especially out of university, and I think this is what your mom would be alluding to is I had student loans to pay. And so to your point, it wasn't, it was never, oh, have your own business and then you'll be able to pay off your student loans. But the equation didn't really make sense. So for me, it was, it was a series of events and mostly this pain point that I had, there was never money extra for universities. So I did have to take on student loans and and pay my way through university. And waitressing was a great way to do that. And so by the time I got out of school, I really wanted to do more with my brain and less with my hands and my feet. And as much as I that was great for me, I was I was dying to do something with my brain. And when I moved to Canmore, those were the jobs that that were available to me. And so I started my own business in response to the fact that I couldn't find work that appealed to me. So I started a a human resources consulting business because when I came to the Valley and and looked at, you know, the hotels and restaurants, there was a big problem in in the sense that there was lots of turnover. So a lot of young people were being hired and there was no onboarding or training. And then there were problems would exist and people would just move jobs regularly for, for every little thing they would switch from, from company to company. And I felt like even with my business degree, I learned some tools that I could take into uh, training this middle level of managers to, to, to do a better job at retaining their staff. So I would, so that was my first foray into entrepreneurship. Other than some travel stories, I guess, where I had to make some money traveling in order to to get by. But this was really my first, let's say, formal entrepreneurship endeavor. So I started to do that and it started to take off. But then this little soap business came up for sale and that drew me in. 
So, so the entrepreneurship bug hit you then. That's really interesting. And so what made you think that I wanted, you wanted to buy this company that had one location, one employee, rather than start your own? Cam had first bought me a number of soaps as a gift. I was living in Edmonton at the time and he was in Canmore. And when the, when the store first opened, he bought me a few of the soap and I tried them and immediately fell in love. And I love the idea of natural. I love the idea of natural ingredients that appealed to me and very much reflected how I approached skincare and beauty as a young girl anyway. Then as we continued to to buy soap for gifts for friends and family, and it was always the same response. This, I love this. I want to get more. And it wasn't something that people placed in their bathroom and never used. It was never on display. It was always something that people were using. And so it felt like a great gift. And the word of mouth, like that initial response when people use the product was very compelling. And so that, that was one of the key factors that, that drew us in. And, and your husband, Cam, and yourself, did you guys have any background to understand a manufacturing or like even how to make a product uh, such as a soap? Because let's face it, whether like in my world, whether it's a beverage that you consume or whether it's soap, that you put on your body, there are definitely a lot of things that you have to make sure that you're checking the boxes of. And so when all of a sudden you are not just a consumer, when you are the manufacturer, so did they actually have a manufacturing plant back then or was it just they were buying from a co-packer? The original owner was making everything in the back of the store. It was, I call it that, I call that period kitchen cosmetics. It was a little kitchen with a hot plate, a sink, and a, and a bit of floor space and some shelving in the back of the store. The whole, the whole, the whole footprint of the store was 500 square feet. And so there was, let's say, 100 square feet in the back for making product. So that's no, we had no background in retail. We had no background in manufacturing or consumer goods. All of that, I, I have to say that level of naivety and not knowing was such a gift for us because it wasn't like we were going into an industry that already already was established. The natural industry was not an industry at that time. It was very much a farmer's, farmer's market product. And so going entering into the category in 2000, we were in a unique state, there was no pressure, there was no competition. And we needed that time because, because there was not a lot of demand for natural products. You can imagine on the supply side, there was nothing built up in terms of manufacturing expertise, ingredient expertise, no regulation. It was so, so green. And so we had this, this number of years where we had to de- develop these capabilities and intellectual property around formulation. And we were able to do that in a bit of a bubble. And, and we were doing it at a time when actually consumers didn't care. We, we were very committed to 100% natural. And I would say consumers and some of our suppliers and our, even our contract chemists that we work with, nobody else had that philosophy. So it was very much like, why do you care? to be a hundred percent. Bird's bees is 99 or 98. Like why is that not good enough? Right. But we really pushed for to be fully a hundred percent 
natural. So what was your competition at that time, like Burt's Bees, what was the one or 2% that they had that you didn't want in your product? Generally, that would be a preservative. A preservative could be a fragrance oil, perhaps an emulsifier, but, you know, like just those ingredients that you would add at half a percent, one percent. Having that motto to be 100% natural, did you think that it would it was a competitive edge or was that just a value that you guys had? It was a value. It was, how do we say we're natural when we're not 100% natural? It, it never, it felt false. It felt inauthentic to claim that if we weren't 100%. In that, in that journey then, in order to become 100% natural and then create products and then actually create them. So you create products and then you actually make them and then start selling them. And so where did you guys find the biggest challenge? Was it in the formulation? Was it in the manufacturing? Or was it in the retail and the marketing to tell people what this was? It was in the beginning. It was in, and it's evolved now, but in the beginning, it was in the in the development in the R&D because our toolbox was so small in terms of the ingredients that were available to us. We were working through big challenges in terms of preservatives, emulsifiers, scenting the product, stability, color, all of these attributes for beauty products were largely undeveloped in the industry under 100% natural. And so that was the majority of my time was understanding natural formulation and how to do it the way we, to the strictness that we, we held ourselves to with very little resources. That was absolutely the challenge, pushing, pushing, pushing our, our contract, contract chemist that we worked with and also spending a lot of time developing the supply chain of where we could you know, find these ingredients and lots of research into making sure that what we were getting was truly a hundred percent natural. Right. So again, it, it seems so strange now because it's so much more developed as an industry and supply chain, but in those, the first 10 years, that was the biggest challenge. Once you started and you've got, you know, some soaps and you're deciding to expand from that one location and expand, did you expand your manufacturing first or your retail first, or did you make partnerships or how did you decide to grow from just the one location to the next level? So we had, we started off with a focus on wholesale. So we had been selling to Jasper Park Lodge with gift sets. We create, we create these gift baskets and sell them to Jasper Park Lodge. And we had started to sell to Save on Foods. So wholesale, our wholesale accounts felt like the best channel for us to grow the business initially and to be able to support Cam and I both in the business. Because the first year, it was just me. So what the, I mean, the business wasn't making any money. I was taking $12,000 home a year. It was 86,000 in sales the first year. So it's very, very small. So it was, it wasn't even supporting one of us. So wholesale seemed like the best growth strategy in the early days, because it didn't require a lot of capital to, to add sales to the business. So we were, we were very focused on wholesale as we started to develop some revenue through our wholesale channels, then we felt like we, I mean, clearly we have to be in inbound. It's right next door. There's a lot of 
traffic inbound would be a great next starting off point for the brand. So our Banff location was our first, you know, our second location, and then still continued to to focus on wholesale. And and then fast forward, say another three or four years, we had opened a store in Edmonton because I knew that market. I was from there. And we went to West Edmonton Mall. I guess we'd like to... Because we didn't know retail, we just picked where everybody was. And we tried to pick, you know, what... We didn't... We felt like we didn't mind paying the higher rent if we knew that's where people were going. And then we looked at all of our wholesale accounts. Well, all of our wholesale accounts add up to what one of the stores is doing. So where where do we want to play? And so that was happening as well as some of the bigger accounts that we were selling to. Again, because it's 100% natural, we were trying to educate consumers at that time as to why we're different wholesale became less and less attractive because consumers are experiencing hundreds of brands in that experience. And there was no opportunity for us to, to have a conversation with the consumer. We had, we had trouble controlling pricing, merchandising product that was going old because we had it at that time, it was not common for a product in the natural beauty industry to have a shelf life of one or two years. And so what we would, we would find old product on the shelf and immediately take it off, but it was constant. It's so much work. And then meanwhile, we're trying to grow this retail business and we had to choose where are we going to put all of our energies? Cause right, because right now we're not doing either to the best of our ability. And that was the defining moment where we, we started to layer up. Okay. It's a hundred percent natural it felt like a high touch experience. Consumer needs some education. There's conversation there. It's a premium product. It's higher price point. There's a quality aspect. All of those those factors led up to uh, a shift in our business model towards a retail focus. And then from that moment on, building out our what our own retail stores looked like became the priority. We, we experimented with franchise. Two of our locations, we felt we experimented. We experimented with two growth strategies. We did. We tried two franchise locations, and then we also tested opening stores where friends and family could invest in that location. So we would set up a, a, a separate legal entity for one location, and we had friends and family invest in that store. Let's say up to thirty percent, and that was the cap. That was our growth strategy or capital strategy for how we added added these stores. And over time, we learned that the franchise model, while it definitely has some benefits, it, it wasn't that appealing to us because we weren't a Subway or a McDonald's. We didn't have, we weren't at the level where we had very defined, detailed systems and processes. It wasn't cookie cutter. And so the franchise model didn't work perfectly for us. And we, from there, we started to then only do corporate stores. And as the business grew, we didn't have to take um, capital from friends and family anymore. The business started to self-generate its own growth strategy. I love how you've actually tried a variety of things because I think a lot of people read other 
entrepreneur's journeys and especially when it's consumer packaged goods and they think that there is only one way for it to be successful that I have to have retail or I can only be wholesale or I only can you know be franchise or only can and I love that you guys figured you tried it all and figured out what actually worked for not only your brand but you for your finances and also your product at the end of the day. Like, how do you do justice to a product that needed education that you were filled your guys' values and your mission? And I really do like that you you said that, you know, you tried, it didn't really work out. You knew what you were getting into in some cases and not in some cases. And, and that's like everybody's story. And I think that's great that you, when you go into something a little bit naive, because if you knew everything, we would never do anything as entrepreneurs. So I, you wouldn't you'd scare yourself away from- I do love that there was some naivety to all of the steps to understand, okay, what actually works for Rocky Mountain Soap Company and me and like what we are trying to do and, and our growth and understanding that there is some goals here and some plans. Because I do think that we can all drown in opportunity as entrepreneurs and try to do all of it. And then in the end, not do any really well. And then also not say no and, and, consider it a failure and move on from it Uh, because it's really easy to say yes to everything, but then actually to pick a winner that works for you is hard. And so when did you guys decide that, okay, we are going to be corporate and and we are going to, our growth strategy is this, and we're not going to continue to try a bunch of the other things that are going to come our way. And, and in consumer packaged goods, of course, there's lots of different things that you could do. And so when did you guys define that, okay, we've experimented with almost everything that we're comfortable with or can think of, and this is what we're going to do? Yeah, it's a good point because when we, I would say we made that decision, yeah, I would say in the last eight years. And the benefit of trying all of those things there's a life cycle, right? That a business goes through. And in the early days, you're taking any sales, right? Because you need the cash, you need the revenue. You're hiring friends and family or people who are passionate about the business, but may not have skills and experience that you need. When you're growing an organic business and you're not taking in external capital, you're really on a shoestring budget. And so my experience is very much this organic kind of a growth curve life cycle for the business. And so we tried everything. We were chasing revenue in order to keep the business alive. As time went on, while we have been profitable every year, we got to this stage where the revenue and the profit allowed us to be able to focus. And we felt like we had you know, some stability in the business that then we could say, it's no longer chasing revenue anymore. It's about being strategic, delivering value, brand experience, customer experience, product experience, all of these things. I guess like it's like moving up in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? The basic foundation of the business was established. There was some stability there. We started to become more strategic, more deliberate. We started to learn, you know, and we started to learn different skills. We were making products, ringing sales in, mopping the floor, hiring people to then eventually having teams to then having leaders of teams to now leaders of leaders of teams, right? So meanwhile, 
business has evolved, as the business is evolving, it it would only grow as quickly as Cam and I were evolving, right? And I'm sure you've experienced that too, where the the growth of the business is limited by the, the growth of the entrepreneur itself. And so when we decided to focus on corporate and we decided to be more strategic, it's because the business had a foundation and I had gone to... I had joined entrepreneurs organization. I was learning these business model foundations. I was bringing back systems and processes and strategic thinking. And I would say learning how to run the business and get out of the detail of making soap and bringing in transactions with customers. And so that learning curve for me, uh, entrepreneurs organization was definitely that first injection of of learning and then I went back to school I went to Harvard for owner president management program which is an executive education program for business owners and it it's it's not an MBA it's not a it's not a, a certificate program but it is a lot of the modules from the MBA program are taught and positioned for owners and it was a global kind of a peer group. And so not only am I learning from the Harvard case studies, but I'm learning from all 139 business owners across the world. And so you start to create these patterns and you start to see that there's, as much as our businesses are unique, there's so many commonalities that we can borrow from each other. And so when that, I guess that summarizes that life cycle of where we are today and when we started to focus and be more strategic now everything is in in honor of does it make sense right and and very much about building a sustainable solid company we're not it's still you I mean as much as it's getting larger and and the growth is is continuing on it still feels like an organic business to me because that's been the history of the growth. But I like that at a certain point you discovered, I think all entrepreneurs, if they're being honest with themselves, do or anybody even in their career say that I have maybe reached uh, my my cliff, my my plateau as far as the skills that I have today. So where do I go? Who do I meet in order to help me not only recognize the challenges, but to take those next leaps. And so I and there's a variety of interesting ways to do it. And I like that you say that you went back for Harvard and you went to EO and you tried some new organizations to build a network, to find others that were maybe in the same boat or maybe been there and done that. So maybe talk to me about the mentors in your life and, and the networks that you have built as an entrepreneur, because any entrepreneur knows that it can be a lonely path in a variety of different ways. So you do have to really put yourself out there and reach out sometimes to, to not only ask for help, but also just to find people that are in the same group or in the same kind of timeline as you are as an entrepreneur, because there are timelines. Like a startup entrepreneur is great, but you as an entrepreneur after 15 years or so are looking for something else from others. So talk to me about a little bit about that, that mentor piece that you have found. Yeah, it's a great question because it, it comes from so many sources, but I'll summarize it as, first of all, we are avid readers. At our house, This we have so many books in our house that we keep building bookshelves and then now they're overflowing. We have just, there's books everywhere on all the coffee tables. 
in all the kids' bedrooms in our bedroom. So we're, we're just always reading. And it could be, it most likely is a business book, but it could be anything from economics and history and biographies. So it's, it's quite a range in terms of what we read. I find anything I read, even if it's not a business book, still gives me ideas, right? So going broad in terms of where we're getting the learning from, travel, we've traveled extensively and learned so much in our travels. And the formal mentorship piece for us has evolved over time. So initially it was cold calling people that we thought were smarter than us. I mean, everybody's always smarter than us because there's some, everybody has something that they can bring to us that we just don't have that. Lots of cold calling, interesting people. Our first formal relationship for a mentor and an advisor was Sean Durfee from WestJet. And he stepped down as CEO and my EO group had brought him in in that first year that he um, left WestJet. And he spoke to the group and he was working with different businesses at that time. And I said, I just said, hey, <laughs> we had this little soap business and we could re- I could really use some help and hear specifically on what I would be looking for help with. And he came into the business for two years and helped Cam and I and our leadership team think differently about the business. It was, again, very much along the strategic lines and how we organized ourselves and made decisions. And then we hired a more of a let's call it a financial business advisor. So somebody who was helping with forecast models, cash flow planning, capital planning and budgets and pace of growth and financing strategies. And and so we still work uh, with Glenn. It's been, I think, seven or eight years. Another note worth mentioning uh, is a a leadership coach that we've been working with now for around eight years as well. And that would be a formal relationship. And now I think the next phase for us is, you know, forming a board of advisors, a formal board of advisors, because this next growth phase for us requires that level of oversight. And not only in terms of what that next growth phase looks like, but also the fact that we are, you're hiring executive level leadership team and so can't not just Cam and I, but our you know executive leadership team, we can all benefit from that level of oversight as well. True. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Well, I definitely look forward to seeing what's new and what's next for the Rocky Mountain Soap Company. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate your insight um, and your candor um, with your experiences and your journey. Thanks once again. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Karina, for coming on the show and talking about your journey. And thank you to everyone for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please follow the show wherever you're listening from. And please review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us a ton. I'm Manjeet Minhas, and we'll see you next time.